Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. What does Jesus's mission look like here? What's his mission here? What does Jesus's mission look like here? What does Jesus's mission look like here? What is Jesus's mission here? How do I know what Jesus's mission is? Well, good morning. Hey, uh, so today is Super Bowl Sunday. Um, some of you got your jerseys on, sweatshirts, your team. Uh, somebody asked me, they said they'd never heard of Tulane before this morning. The Tulane Green Wave. Fear the Green Wave. You look, you look scared, I can tell. No, I, I got a Tulane sweatshirt when I was in high school. There were three schools I was looking at going to to study architecture. Uh, Iowa State, and then I also got accepted to Washington University in St. Louis and Tulane University down in uh, New Orleans. And uh, Iowa State won out, and I would have still been an Iowa State fan either way, but it also won out because it was uh, cheaper by a factor of about three. And so uh, I ended up at Iowa State, but I still kind of like Tulane, so, and I like their logo. But, you know, today uh, with the Super Bowl, it reminds me, you know, different rivalries in sports. Your team, you got a team maybe, do they have a rival? Somebody that, uh, you know, you just, oh man, when they're playing, I root for my team and anybody who's playing that team. Anybody got that rival? I, I got a few down, uh, obviously Indiana and Purdue, Notre Dame and everybody. Uh, <laughs> the Maple Leafs and the Canadiens. Uh, Arnold Palmer, Jack Nicholas, the Red Sox and the Yankees, the Cubs and the Cardinals, Auburn, Alabama, India and Pakistan and cricket. You know, and sometimes all these different rivalries, they have different, uh, different things that, you know, pranks and things they pull on them. Uh, one time I, I read about uh, Texas A&M went and branded uh, Texas's Bevo mascot, their big bull, with a 13 and 0. That was the score of the game the year prior. Uh, but close to 100 years ago. But I wonder, do you know about the time that Caltech hacked the Rose Bowl? Caltech, they, don't long, they no longer have a football team, but there was a time when uh, their, that their football team played at the Rose Bowl in that stadium. And at the time, they were the only college football team that did so during the regular season. And in the 1961 Rose Bowl, Caltech pulled off the most epic photobomb in college football history. During the 1961 Rose Bowl between Washington and Minnesota, the Beavers brought attention to themselves by adjusting the Washington flip card show that was to take place at the halftime of the granddaddy of them all. A group of Caltech students broke into the locker room where the Washington cheerleaders had kept all of their equipment. And they changed the papers and the directions for all the flip cards around. And then they sneaked back in and then they replaced all the cards. <laughs> and hilarity ensued on national television. 11 tricks into the card routine, halftime was all well. And then the 12th set uh, showed a beaver, the Caltech mascot, instead of a husky. 
And then the 13th card trick was just an illegible group of letters. <laughs> but the 14th trick was the crowning jewel. When Washington fans, fans flipped the cards over, they read Caltech. And everybody was just like, what's that for? And then a few people started to realize Caltech had got them all. Laughter ensued when they realized they had pulled off the prank of all pranks in that day on national TV. And you know, uh, those are kind of harmless rivalries. Some of them get pretty intense. But you know, really in, in life in general, there's, there's some hostility and rivalry between people, isn't there? Maybe you've got somebody in your life that, uh, well, maybe you've got somebody you can play funny pranks on, but maybe there's somebody who, you know, something's happened and there's just hostility that continues to grind and grate. Or a group of people where uh, there's, there's hostility between groups of people. We see that in our nation, like uh, maybe no other time, don't we? And it just feels unending. Well, this morning in Acts chapter eight, uh, we're gonna read about uh, how the gospel really helps to overcome hostility. And we're gonna see some hostility there this morning. And uh, so before we get in there, why don't you pray with me? And then we're gonna be in Acts chapter eight and we're gonna work our way through the first half of that chapter this morning. Really glad you're here. Let me pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. And uh, Lord, we thank you for... Uh, for, for your son, for Jesus, who has uh, uh, broken down the wall of hostility between us and you, between us and other people then. Uh, Holy Spirit, would you work in our hearts, help us to live those things out, uh, to be true to the gospel and the way that we think and the way that we uh, love people and care for people and live. And uh, show us the example of Philip today. And his willingness, uh, even in the midst of just an incredibly hard uh, part of his life, to still follow you and obey. And Holy Spirit, the way that you continue to work in him and delighted to work through him, uh, even when uh, life maybe didn't make sense to him. Father, would you uh, give us that same faith, that same uh, obedience and uh, work in us by your spirit. Holy Spirit, help me as I teach your word and uh, help us to understand it, I pray. All of this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, what I want you to see this morning is that God takes hostile situations. He takes hostile ones. Not just like the Caltech prank in 1961, but like actual hostile situations, things like even persecution and opposition. If you've got your Bible, turn with me to Acts chapter eight this morning. If you're new, we're working our way through uh, the New Testament book of Acts. And Acts traces the, the birth of the church, the first days of the church, and how it continues uh, to, to carry out and live out what Jesus began to do and teach in the Gospels. And uh, we're 16 weeks in now, we're into the eighth chapter. And uh, we've seen uh, God do some incredible things through this early group of Christians. And uh, up until this time, everything that's taken place has taken place in the city of Jerusalem. And now we're gonna start to see it spread out. And up until this time, there's been some hostility, but uh, now we're seeing overt persecution against the, these early believers in Jesus Christ. And uh, we saw it last Sunday with uh, the death, the, the murder of Stephen, a godly man who, 
preached the gospel and even on his deathbed forgave those who murdered him and prayed for them. And one of the things we read is that about Stephen's execution, uh, there was a guy named Saul who was there who approved of it. Now we're gonna learn more about Saul in a couple weeks because God's actually gonna get a hold of his heart. But essentially Saul was, he was a terrorist towards Christians. Read about some of the things that he did. There, there arose on that, on that day then, Stephen's death, a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Other than the, the core leaders of the church, everybody was scattered. Uh, it'd be like if uh, suddenly there was great persecution here and other than maybe our pastors and elders, uh, the rest of you scattered to places like South Bend and Fort Wayne and down towards Kokomo and Muncie and everybody just began to scatter out because it was too intense to stay in Jerusalem. And, and Saul approved of all this. And in fact, um, he was really key in it. See, devout men buried Stephen. They made great lamentation over him. A lot of weeping, even your translation might say. But look at Saul. He, is, he's a, he was a terrorist. He was, he was ravaging the church. He was entering house after house and he would drag off men and women and commit them to prison. He, he brutally treated the church. Later, Paul would end up writing, Saul becomes Paul. He would write that I'm the chief of, of all sinners. Like nobody sinned like me. And it would break his heart what, what he had done to God's people. But God got a hold of his heart. And so it's just a good reminder that, and we're gonna see that in a few weeks, but it's a good reminder that maybe whoever it is, maybe somebody came to your mind even as I was talking earlier about you know, rivalry and hostility and maybe there's somebody who came to your mind in your life and you go, I don't know that God could ever change them. Oh yeah, I can. Yes, he can. And you never know, he might in dramatic fashion. So don't give up on them. Don't quit praying for them. Don't quit loving them. And uh, no, God's in the business of changing people in huge and dramatic ways. So take heart in that. He did it with Saul and uh, he's the same God doing the same things. Well, uh, now those who were scattered, imagine if we did face that kind of persecution and that kind of opposition and all of a sudden we had to scatter just to the four different winds. What would you do? I don't know about you, but I'd be kind of tempted to just kind of hunker down and hide out. Like, I'm not gonna stir the pot. I'm just gonna sit here, do my thing until everything calms down. But notice this group of Christians, look at what they did. They, they kept preaching the word. Those who were scattered, they just went about doing what they were doing before. They couldn't help but tell people about Jesus and what was going on. And in many ways, I'm sure as they showed up on doorsteps of, of other people's uh, homes and in different communities, they, people are like, what are you doing here? And they told the story. And it opened doors for them to be able to share the gospel. Uh, you know, this persecution really forced the believers out of their homes in Jerusalem. And with them went the gospel. You know, sometimes... Uh, 
Is this you or just me maybe? Sometimes you have to become uncomfortable before you move. <laughs> like God even lets you get or even makes you uncomfortable before you move and before you uh, really do what maybe you know in your heart he's called you to do or that you just have a sense of. And sometimes discomfort can be the best thing for us because God works through our pain. And, and he takes uh, not just hostility in relationship, but just hostility in our hearts, you know, and frustration in our hearts and discomfort and fill in your adjective. And he uses that to push us forward and to pull us toward him. He works through our pain. So if, if you're ever tempted to complain about an uncomfortable or painful circumstance, you might stop and just ask God for a moment, God, what are you teaching me in this? How do I need to grow? How can I look to you in this? See, the, the Christian life isn't so much about just everything uh, getting to where life is thriving and wonderful all the time, because sometimes you're surviving, not thriving. The, the key is what's your attitude and your mindset toward God in those moments? Are you always going Godward? Whether life is really good or whether life makes no sense. And the key is your disposition toward God. Well, uh, this group of people, clearly, uh, they were looking toward God and uh, they were scattered due to Saul's persecution and the persecution of others. But this scattering led to the gospel spreading. It didn't quell it, even though that's what they were trying to do. It just lit a fire. And uh, uh, Philip uh, here, he is one of them. He gets mentioned now. We, we looked at Stephen last Sunday and now another guy, one of the seven who were appointed to serve in the church. Philip is the next guy. This isn't, by the way, Philip the apostle. Remember Jesus saw, uh, he talked to Philip and Nathaniel and saw him under the, the tree and all that. Not, not Philip the apostle, but this is, a, this is Philip the, the deacon, I guess, for lack of a better way to say it. He shows up first in Acts chapter six, and now we learn about him here. And when you look at Stephen and Philip together, it's just a reminder that God uses his servants however he sees fit, right? Because with uh, both of them are, are solid, they're spiritual men. Both were effective in their evangelism and, and sharing the gospel. Uh, both were mightily used of God in that way, yet Stephen was killed as the church's first martyr. His ministry lasted, I don't know, a week or two, three, and he was done. But Philip's goes on for decades. In fact, we read more about Philip in Luke chapter two, chapter 21, excuse me, Acts chapter 21, I'm sorry, where Luke writes about him and Paul and others go to Philip's house decades later and hang out with him and stay there with him. You know, God uses us however long he wants in whatever place he wants. And sometimes it's a long time, sometimes it's a short time, but he, he uses all of us according to his plan. Philip, we read, uh, went down to the city of Samaria and he proclaimed to them the Christ. So everybody's scattered. They're going about doing their thing, uh, preaching about Jesus. And Philip goes down to Samaria. That's where he's scattered to. Now, when you read in scripture, uh, almost every time you read down, it doesn't mean like down the map, like we would think south. It's down in elevation, especially when they leave Jerusalem. Whenever they're leaving Jerusalem, they're always going down somewhere because Jerusalem's on a mountain. So they're going down to Samaria. 
And what we're gonna see next is not just hostility and persecution and opposition, but hostility in relationships and in cultures. Relationships and cultures. See, uh, he goes down to Samaria. I wonder, what, you, what do you know about Samaria? Do you know anything about it? Let me share some geography with you here. Those of you who like maps will like this next part. Uh, those of you who don't, you can just learn about Samaria and it'll be okay. Be pretty colors on the screen, if nothing else. Uh, here's a map of, of Israel, modern day Israel. And you can see Jerusalem here, which is the same Jerusalem that they were in, in Acts. And uh, modern day Israel, it's, it's bordered basically on the east by uh, Lake Galilee, the Sea of Galilee. And then the Jordan River flows south out of the Lake of Galilee and down into the Dead Sea. And, and that's basically the easternmost border of most of Israel, parts of it, the West Bank of Jerusalem though, uh, much of that is, is controlled by uh, Palestinian rule. And then here we have Jerusalem and we read that, do you remember where was Philip heading? He was heading to some area. See what I did there? Samaria. <laughs> Make sure you're awake. Some of you are sleeping, but it's okay. I got dad jokes all day. Uh, he heads to Samaria and he heads down there to Samaria. Well, Israel basically could be... Uh, divided up into three parts. And remember, everything we've read so far and studied so far in the book of Acts pretty much happens in Jerusalem. And now it's extending to this area of Samaria. And ancient Israel could be divided into three parts, as I was just saying. Uh, in the south, you'd have Judea, that orange section that kind of surrounded Jerusalem. And then to the north was an area known as Galilee. This is where Jesus was from and some of the, the apostles. Um, and it was named Galilee because it was the area that surrounded a, a lake called Galilee in its midst. Does that sound familiar? We all live in an area called Wawasee because it's surrounding a lake called Wawasee. Pretty similar to that. And then in between them was this area in the middle known as Samaria. Now, uh, the city of Samaria in the region of Samaria had been the capital of uh, the Northern Kingdom of Israel in the days of the divided kingdom. And if you don't know your history of the Bible, that's okay, let me try to give you a little background uh, to make sense. See, in 722, excuse me, BC, uh, the Northern part of Israel was conquered by, by Assyria. Uh, King Sargon, and during that war, Sargon had taken many captives and he left only the poorest in the land of Israel and took the rest of them back with him to Assyria. And then he left some of his people in this area. See, Northern Israel would be basically Samaria and Galilee on up. And so he comes in from Assyria, comes in, conquers it, leaves some of his people, takes away everybody but the poorest, and uh, for a couple centuries then, these people are living there together and the Jews who are left in that place begin to intermarry with the Assyrians and uh, it causes uh, some issues. Especially among the Jewish people still living in Judea and before they were taken exile themselves to Babylon, there was this disdain that began to grow because the Jews there were 
abandoning God and intermarrying with people of another religion. It wasn't the issue of race, but of religion and being unequally yoked in that way. And this continued then for centuries, even up until the day of Jesus. And in Jesus' day, if you were a devout Jew living in Jerusalem and you had to go to Galilee, you likely hated the Sumerians so much that instead of going through Samaria the quickest way, you would cross the Jordan River, then go up, cross the Jordan River again back into Galilee so you never even had to go through Samaria. There was that much hostility between these people. Well, if you want an assignment this week, go read John chapter four where we read that Jesus on his way to Galilee from Jerusalem had to go through Samaria. And there was another city over here called Sychar where he stops and he meets a woman at the well. And he crosses that bridge. He he bridges that gap, maybe I should better say, of, of reaching out to a culture that everybody hated. And even when he begins talking to this woman, the disciples come and see he's talking to this and they're like, what are you doing? Why are you talking to her? And yet Jesus bridges that gap and he ends the hostility. That's what his work on the cross does for us, right? Our hostility between us and God and between one another. And really the only hope for for peace and for reconciliation, true reconciliation in our world is the gospel and is Jesus Christ. Well, uh, as we're reading here in Acts, that tension was still there between the Jewish people and the Samaritans. And so even those who came to faith in Jesus Christ, who were Jews, to consider that somebody from Samaria might come to faith was a little bit shocking to them. You're gonna see that here in a moment. But Philip going down to Samaria fulfilled what Jesus said was going to happen at the very beginning of this book. He said, you're gonna receive power when the Holy Spirit's come on you, and then you're gonna Witnesses, we're at first in Jerusalem and Judea. That's that area surrounding Jerusalem. People from that whole area were coming at times to hear and were benefiting and being healed because of the work of the gospel in Jerusalem. And then what's next? Samaria. And that's what we see happening. Jesus' words being fulfilled as Philip goes to Samaria. Now, one last thing here that might be helpful for you just to get a gauge of how big this is. I've got a little... uh, Uh, key up there, about 50 miles across on that line, but let's compare it to Indiana. Here's Indiana, and in case you wondered, uh, that blue dot, uh, you are here. That's where we are right now, if you're in the room with me anyway. If you're online, I don't know where you are for sure, but we're here. And uh, Lake Wawasee is just that little sliver right there, and to give you maybe a little more context of, of size, there's Warsaw and Uh, Kokomo's in here, and then of course, Indianapolis. Well, let's lay that on top of Israel to give you an idea of kind of this area and really how small it was. If you were to superimpose those, that's the exact same scale. Here to Kokomo would be about like Galilee to Jerusalem, pretty much the same distance. And so uh, this is this, this small area, incredible hostility happening in that small sliver of land. And now God is at work and he plans to bridge that gap as Philip goes from Jerusalem down to Samaria. So with that, let's keep reading. Let's get back to the text. 
Verse five, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And what God is gonna do here is he's gonna take the hostility that exists and uh, he's gonna take hostile situations and make them hospitable. He's gonna bring good news to these people. Unless there was persecution, I don't know that anybody of them would have ever went to Samaria. You know, sometimes I wonder, you look at some of the things happening in the world today and uh, unrest and uh, conflict and it can be fearful as we look at it. But maybe we need to step back and say, God, what are you doing? Um, He's obviously working things eventually for Jesus to return, but that might be next year, that might be two centuries from now. We really don't know. But, but what's he doing? I mean, is he making us uncomfortable because he wants to push us out, do some things that he's called us to do? Could be. And one of the ways that God makes these hostile situations hospitable, first is through our obedience. And we see that in the church and in Philip. Let's go back to the text here. I'm gonna back up to verse four. Those who are scattered, they went about their obedient, preaching the word. Philip went to the city of Samaria and he proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When, when they heard him and they saw the signs that he did. Uh, Philip too is doing signs. Stephen was the first non-apostle to be shown doing that. And now Philip is, And Luke uses the word signs here to remind us that these aren't just for the benefit of Philip or the benefit of the people, but they're they're a sign pointing to something. That's what signs do, right? And this is pointing to the validity of what Philip was preaching and and letting everyone know the, the gospel is true. Jesus has risen from the dead. And the gospel is not just for believing Jews, but also now for the Samaritans as well. It's for everyone. And look at some of the things that was happening. Unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice. Your translation might say shrieking, that's the word, as they came out. Of many who had them. You know, and and crying out with a loud voice shrieking because uh, while demons are powerful and real, uh, Jesus is more powerful. And they're created by Jesus and they have no authority in light of him or before him. Jesus has all authority, and so they have no choice but to leave when the gospel is preached, and and Philip is casting out these evil spirits. Many who were paralyzed or who were lame were healed. Think about all this happening. This would be incredible. Philip, who's a refugee, is healing the people that he's gone to. God's using him. So, I think this might be an understatement. There was much joy in that city. A lot of joy in that city. Uh, There's joy, friends, in knowing God and being healed by God, whether that's physically or even better, spiritually. Uh, it's, it's healing and joy apart from just the despair and barrenness of life. Do you struggle with that? Look to God. 
Study him. Delight in him. It's not like a magic fix that everything gets better, right? And like a country song goes backwards in your life and you get everything back. But it is a remedy for your heart because God created you to know him and to love him and to delight in him. So there was much joy in that city. And not only through our obedience, as we obey God, does he work and give us joy, but also through his spirit. Let's keep reading. Uh, Luke gives us uh, insight here, just to kind of a strange situation. There was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in that city and amazed the people of Syria saying that he was somebody great. Thought about coming up, you know, today doing illustrations, try to learn some card tricks, do some magic for you, but I gave up on that. I didn't want to be like Simon. Thought he was somebody great doing magic and dark arts. And they paid attention to him from the least to the greatest saying, hey, this man is the power of God that's called great. We actually learned from some of the church fathers, uh, like Justin Martyr, that, that even in Rome, Simon was known. Uh, this, he, was, he was a powerful man. Uh, and really he was powerful because of the work of Satan in him. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Notice uh, as uh, Philip's signs and, and the wonders that God did through him, the Holy Spirit did through him, uh, now are convincing people of the truth of the gospel because they didn't just believe because of his signs, they believed the good news about God and about the kingdom of Jesus. And that's what they believed. And because they believed it, they were baptized. They gave a public identification of their faith. Hey, if you haven't been baptized, we're gonna be doing some baptisms on Easter. And uh, you might consider that if you're interested in getting baptized and giving that same public profession of faith. As both men and women getting baptized, Check this out. Even Simon himself believed. The powerful magician believed. But here's what's curious. There's a lot of debate about this passage and uh, I spent a lot of time studying it this week and probably land on the side that I don't think, uh, I've gone back and forth, but I don't think Simon actually believed the gospel and truly believed uh, what Stephen, or Stephen, what Philip was preaching about the kingdom of God and the word of Jesus Christ. Because it doesn't say what he believed, just that he believed. You'll see what I mean here in a moment. And he even got baptized. Notice baptism then, if this is true, if I'm right, that uh, Simon never really truly repented of his sin and trusted Jesus is what it means to become a Christian, not just go through the motions. Baptism doesn't save you. doesn't do anything like that for you. It's just an outward sign of hopefully something that's happened inwardly in your heart. I'm not so sure it did in Simon's life. And again, we'll see that in a moment. But seeing these signs and great miracles performed, that's really what amazed Simon. He liked the show. Liked how it made him feel. But uh, God takes this hostile situation and he makes it hospitable 
you know, through the obedience of God's people, through the power of his spirit, ultimately by the power of the gospel. See, there was amazing grace at work here when the people of Samaria, uh, while they had been amazed by Simon's magic tricks, now they're amazed and enthralled with the wonder and the truth of the gospel. That there's nothing they can do to earn God's favor. That uh, you can never be good enough. That it's, uh, see, they, they, they were enthralled with this good news about the kingdom of God, that it's for everybody, including them, who are considered at times as an alien race among the Jewish people. I mean, it, the, the tension was, I can't really put it into words. It was, think of the, the worst tension between two groups of people that you can imagine in your lifetime. It was that bad or worse, probably worse, between the Jews and the Samaritans. And so it was great news to them about the kingdom of God. They didn't have to uh, get their life cleaned up and become somebody they weren't. They just had to trust in this good news of Jesus who all by his grace saves them. And it was for them. See, if you don't know that truth, here's what it is. Uh, First, the bad news. You and I are more jacked up and worse than you ever feared. When you think about all the things that you know about yourself and about the ways that you're messed up and broken, all the things I know about myself and the ways I'm messed up and broken, as bad as sometimes that feels and is, the bad news is it's actually worse. That it's not just in what you've done, but it's in in who you are. We're born sinful. But the good news is that in spite of that, You are loved, you're loved more than you ever hoped you could be by a God who loves you deeply, who gave his son to to take all of that junk, bear it on the cross himself to actually even become sin for us. The New Testament teaches Jesus on the cross became the murderer. He became the pervert. He became Fill in the blank. He became sin so that we who are sinful would know his righteousness. And he graciously takes all of our junk and gives us all of his goodness. See, because he never sinned. And yet he paid the penalty for sin on the cross. And this was enthralling to the Samaritans. And it's no different today. That if you'd simply believe Believe in your heart, confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. You don't have to clean anything up before that point. It's from that point, Jesus cleans you up. Do you see? It's good news. It's really good news. Well, Simon, unfortunately, didn't quite get it. He just saw the signs and the good things happening and it it never made the connection to his heart. See, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard the Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Uh, this happens uh, each time that the gospel goes to a new group of people. Uh, 
there's a, a secondary pouring out of the spirit to give evidence of the fact that it's the same thing that happened at Pentecost. It's gonna happen again later with Cornelius and Peter. And uh, really, uh, there's different patterns here in, in Acts, but uh, the primary one is that when you believe in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within you and you receive the Holy Spirit. And there's not this second thing to search after or to, to seek after, to be filled with the Spirit, sure, but not for, to receive him. He comes and lives in you. Notice too, uh, just a moment here, uh, Luke's, Luke calls the Holy Spirit he. He's a person, not an it, not a force, but a person of the Trinity. And uh, we'll talk more about that in the weeks ahead, but we're gonna keep moving today. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. But let's get back to Simon. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. And he said, uh, hey, give me this power too so that anybody whom I lay my hands on could receive the Holy Spirit. And that's kind of what I do. I, I do things like this and people are amazed, you know. Give me some of that. Simon didn't get it though. You can't buy it. You can't earn it either. See, when... Uh, when Simon saw the spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money saying, give me this power so that I can, can give it to anyone whom I lay my hands on. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you. Literally go to destruction with you. You and your silver, a, a right translation of this would be you and your silver can go to hell. Because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You can't earn it. You cannot. And then he goes after his heart. So I'd encourage us as we wrap up this morning to check our hearts. See, uh, here's what Peter says. You have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. It's not about your actions, friends. It's not about sitting in that pew. It's not about watching online. It's, it's, it's your heart that God's after. How's your heart? Peter says, repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and, and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart might be forgiven you. For I see that you're in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. You're, you're stuck in your sin, Simon. You need Jesus to rescue you. Repent and turn to him. And then Simon answered, See, I don't think he ever repented. He said, Peter told him to pray, but what's Simon say? Pray for me. <laughs> Maybe Simon did one day, I don't know. But I don't think he did here. He said, pray for me to the Lord. Not that I could be saved, but that all that stuff doesn't happen to me. <laughs> Friend, the only buddy, the only, only buddy, the only person who can choose Christ for you is you. And if you haven't, what's the holdup? He loves you. You can never earn his favor. He will never love you any more than he loves you today or than he will tomorrow or any less for that matter. And he's, he's offering for you to repent and turn to him. And he will forgive the intent of your heart 
everything you've done, everything that's been done to you, everything you're going to do. That's called grace. Now, when they had testified and spoken the word of God, Peter and John, they returned to Jerusalem. And on the way, they were preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. God had taken this hostile situation and made it hospitable by the power of the gospel. And friend, he'll do the same for you in your heart and in your life through the same power as you turn to Christ. Let me pray.